Welcome to the new National Trust podcast series. I'm Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead and somebody who's very passionate about everything outdoors. In this series, we'll be exploring the Trust's amazing spaces, delving into the stories and characters that make each place so special. We'll be travelling all around the country, from hilltop to seaside. We'll tread sandy paths and the polished wooden floors of country homes, not to mention some spectacular gardens. We'll delight in birdsong, sublime views and exceptionally good cream teas. So join me on this journey and immerse yourself in the wonders of the National Trust. Today I'm in Buckinghamshire to explore a garden that has been described as a work of art. 250 acres of sculpted landscape, replete with ornamental lakes, temples and monuments. Its beauty has attracted visitors and inspired writers and artists for over 300 years. Of course, I'm in Stowe. A garden shaped by the hands and imaginations of some of history's finest gardeners, the gardens were designed to be a paradise on earth, a purpose that they serve to this day. But the garden is also ripe with political history and hidden meaning. And in this episode, I'll be soaking in the beauty of this magnificent Georgian splendor, as well as digging into the past to understand the people and the politics that have given Stowe its distinct character. I'm on my way to meet Hannah Richards. She's a gardener on the team here at Stowe and she's promised to show me around the garden. It's just starting to spit rain at Stowe today, so we've just taken shelter in the Temple of Venus in one of the arches, which frames a magnificent view across the lake and I can just see a feature in the distance glimpsing out from behind the trees. I can understand why you want to work here, Hannah. How long have you been a gardener here? I've been here for three years now, just over. Still learning and still loving it. It's beautiful settings and it's such a nice place for a bit of escapism. So on the most basic level, it's really enjoyable. But then when you start to delve a little bit deeper and you start to get into some of the stories of the people and the events that have happened here, it adds a whole new layer of meaning to everything. Who was the family that lived here originally? So we started off in the 1500s with the Temple family it was Peter Temple who, the only way to describe him really was uh, like a Dell boy on horseback. Bit of a wheeler dealer, he came from a sheep farming background in Whitney and then he was offered the chance to take on a lease at Stowe, which he absolutely snapped their hand off. Not only was it a gorgeous setting, but also you had Buckingham where they had two MPs elected by about 13 voters. So he was keen to, to gain power and he knew that this would be his way into it. So they went from humble beginnings to being one of the most famous and influential families in the country. They had quite literally more money than they knew what to do with. They were definitely trendsetters of the time and they wanted to sort of start moving away from formal parterres and straight lines and move towards the landscape movement, which was softening everything. It was using ha-has to create that borrowed landscape. Could you describe for me what a ha-ha looks like on the landscape? 
If it's doing its job, it will look like nothing in the landscape. Um, the easiest way to explain it is it's a sunken wall. So rather than using fencing or, or walls to keep cattle out, it was dug into the ground um, with quite a steep bank on the other side. And this way, the, the cattle can't come into the gardens. But when you're waking up and having your breakfast in your manor house, you can look out and see for miles and miles because there's no broken view. Hannah, they sound like a brilliantly successful, determined, kind of um, almost ruthless family in what they wanted to do. And their wealth, as you said, was, you know, they could hardly count the money they had. But actually, they went bankrupt, didn't they? How on earth did that happen? I think possibly they got a bit too used to the finer taste in life. They were very power hungry and they wanted as many royal visits as they could and famous visits, but they couldn't let one of these go past without installing a new statue in the garden or a new monument in their honour. And then before they knew it, they were in just huge amounts of debt. So the Temple Grenville family went from rags to riches and then to ruin in a couple of centuries. All that was but a blip in the timeline of Stowe's magnificent ancient trees. I'm on my way now to see such a tree. I'm stood beneath what is a magnificent oak tree. It's, it's in and around 700 years old, but it's got a massive, massive trunk to it. But actually, the canopy of the tree is quite small. It's been pollarded in the past, so... That means all the heavy limbs would have been reduced and reduced right back to the main stem and this young growth has been allowed to come. But what really draws my eye is the, is the trunk. It's gnarly, it's old. And from my point of view, being a bit of a tree anorak myself, you know, it's full of character. It's got a real ancient character to it. But as you kind of wander around the tree, you can see right into the heart of the tree, and the heartwood is, is pretty much gone, and there's a skeletal structure holding this tree up. And I'm standing here next to this tree with Anna Tolfrey. I don't know why, but I always refer to her as a she, and I think about what she's seen in her lifetime, what she's experienced, you know, what she's seen come and go. She would have seen all the cattle walking past to market that tent farmers would have been taking in. You can almost see the shepherds sheltering under the tree, you know, and having a rest and grazing their animals as they walk past. But for me as well, trees like this, trees as ancient as this, give magnificent punctuation marks on the landscape. I have heard stories that when somebody actually did come and have a look at this oak tree, they looked inside and they were face to face with a fox. It was hiding right in the centre. And they didn't move for a few minutes. They were, I don't know who was more scared, the fox or the person. And they came out in the end. It just, it's great that she is still sheltering people. And when you look at this tree, what does it, you know, I don't want to use the word say to you, but what does it mean to you when you look at a tree of this age? It encompasses what the trust is all about. It's, it's looking after what we have and making sure that everyone has the opportunity to see this sort of thing. We've heard about magnificent ancient trees, Hannah, and we're now standing in what you've told me is the site of an abandoned village. Now, while I look around here, I can see really nice kind of wild grasses 
dips and furrows in the landscape, but to be honest, to the untrained eye, there's no sign of a village here. So what's the story around this corner of Stowe? The dip of trees behind us is actually the, the lines of the road. And Lamport Village, which is the abandoned village, is, is the name of, of where we're standing now. What would the village have looked like? Now, the first record we have of Lamport is actually from 1086 in the Doomsday Book. It was a really, really interesting village because they had quite a diverse range of tradesmen here. And we know that there were three fields, all of which joined together to create a triangular green in the middle of the village. And from where we're standing, it's really difficult to see that. But if you could see an aerial shot of it, you can still, to this day, see the dips in the land and you can see the, the trodden pathways of where these farmers would have walked to and from work. And you can still see the green in the middle, which would have been the, the sort of common where people would have congregated. We know that it was quite a thriving village in the 1600s. But then we start to face the problems of the Temple Grenville family wanting to build themselves a palace with the magnificent gardens to go with it. And they wanted to use the land where Lamport was standing to create a deer park. Sir Peter Temple was definitely one of the, uh, the, the nastier members of the family, shall we say. He knew exactly what he wanted and he knew how he was going to get it. There's so many stories of the residents of Lamport sort of fighting uh, with the Temple Grenville's gamekeepers. We know that there were many, many, many incidents involving sort of swords and long pike staves and poor gamekeepers getting injured. We know from the paperwork that there were lots and lots of incidents of these... Um, midnight shenanigans where they would cross the boundaries and have their little fisticuffs before they came back. And it was all because they were fighting over Lamport. So that's how we know that Lamport started to, to suffer. And where, where did the residents of the abandoned village end up going then? There are records of some of them moving into other villages in the parish, but I think a lot of them just actually disappeared off elsewhere into the country. While the poor villagers of Lamport were ousted from their homes, the Temple Grenville family had their way and the garden was a huge success. In the 1700s, Stowe brought visitors from far and wide and people came to enjoy the stunning landscape and to be awed by the magnificent temples and the settings. But over the years, you know, through falling trees and weathering and deterioration, statues were lost and the shape, I suppose, and the story of the landscape was lost to nature a bit. Now, the National Trust have been very, very busy over the last... 20 years, if not more, restoring the landscape. And I'm standing here at Stowe today with the assistant head gardener at Stowe, Paul Stefanovic. And Paul, you've been involved pretty much since day one of the restoration, haven't you? Absolutely. I've been here from the first day that the National Trust took over from Stowe School. Yes. Amazing time. Um, I can remember very well at the time we started the week working for Stowe School and then we ended the week working for the National Trust. 
and it's just been full-on restoration work ever since. It's amazing to think, isn't it, in that time that you, you probably started a restoration thinking that you'd finish it at some stage, but you're far from it, aren't you? When we first Trust First took over, it was a 20-year restoration project, and that was to restore the temples, to reinstate the paths, the statues, um, the parkland, reinstate the lot in 20 years. And um, I've been here now for nearly 32 years, and I'm still doing restoration work, so it's just full-on and it's totally ongoing. And... It's really interesting thinking about restoration work in a garden like this because I think sometimes you think, okay, there's a defined restoration plan. But I know as you tiptoe your way through the garden, whether it's on foot or in a tractor, you'll come across things like statue pedestals that you might not have known were there, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I can give you a really good example of that. Um, There was an area where we was actually planting some shrubs and one of our volunteers suddenly put his spade in and all of a sudden he shouted out and he hit an enormous stone and he dug down to try and remove the stone and we actually uncovered a statue base literally about three or four inches under the ground and it was on a manacled piece of grass but the statue was laid and we excavated it and uncovered it and it was a full, fully intact statue base. Um, I mean, the good thing here about Stowe is that we got lots of information, we got lots of maps, we got guidebooks from a very early stage. Um, so... I mean, I use those when I do my restoration work. And when you've been doing it for quite a while, you actually get a feel for things. So when I'm looking for pathways or statue bases, you know, you look for telltale signs, you look for trees, you look for stumps that were possibly there, you know, and you get a feel for how things were then, even though you can't see them now. Um, We're standing in a part of the garden at the moment, Paul, that's, to me, brand new. And we have the dancing fawn who's kind of a slightly hunched over muscular figure with pointy ears and a tiny little tail coming out of his back. But it's pristine, isn't it? It is absolutely pristine. This is new. Were you, did, did you, were you involved? Were you here when they discovered the foundations of this it part of the It was me garden? that discovered all these foundations. So first of all, obviously, we had to clear the trees away through just to find the pathways and then to find this area here of the dancing fawns I had my excavator in here and again by getting the maps out we knew roughly where they were the statue bases. Your job sounds like a bit of a combination of gardening, archaeology, construction, digging you know and and research as well putting that jigsaw all back together again and the statues that we see you know are they are they cast concrete statues or are they recarved statues it's hard to tell from here whether they're yeah i mean we've got some and some we've got some stone ones here these ones are actually made of lead the smaller ones are made of lead and those... um, these are the new colored ones that you got here they're painted in proper human dress aren't they yeah, you know the, yeah. the the yeah. dresses the jackets the men are wearing yes. you know they're all painted properly they're all painted properly um and all in the pastel colors but given the color to it i think it's just added a little dimension to like like the sort of the lime wash on the stone here these have been recently lime washed so that's why they look really sort of new and fresh Um, These two statues that you see here, they actually came from a garden in Buckingham and when we got them back to the estate, they they were very old, they were very worn, they were covered in lichens, they had moss over them and these have been um, lime washed just recently just to sort of tie it all in together. Paul, you said these two statues behind came from Buckingham, which is just down the road from Stowe. How on earth did they end up down there? Totally no idea. It was one of their volunteers said she had these two statues in her garden and um, she kindly donated them back to Stowe. Um, so she, it was very kind of her to donate them back. So they have took pride of place in this circle.
I'm going to catch up with Hannah again to learn about some of the other statues and temples that Richard Temple, also known as Lord Cobham, had instated in his garden. Hannah, you can't miss, as you wandered through the garden at Stowe, as we've just done, the number of statues that you catch glimpses of through the trees, and they all maintain a high level of significance in the story of this place, don't they? Yeah, they they all have a reason for being there and a story to tell. And where we are now in the Elysian Fields, this is, without a doubt, the most political part of the garden. Lord Cobham was a prominent politician and he aligned himself with the, the Whig Party back in the day and he very much used the gardens and especially the statuary in the garden to show his political beliefs. And Hannah, who were the Whig Party? What were they all about back in the 18th century? The easiest way to, to say it really is they were sort of rivals of the Tories. Cobham was, Cobham was designing his garden here at Stowe and how did he fit in with the Whig Party? So he was a very high profile member but as Walpole, who was the British Prime Minister, and Cobham fell out, he, he actually split off and joined some other high-profile members of, of the Whig Party. And they sort of fractioned off and started a new patriot opposition based at Stowe. And we're looking across a, a sloping landscape, you know, dressed with some young trees, you know, and some older trees. But... What we see is the, the swathe of grass that runs into the distance, broken by this lake that runs through the middle. And the Temple of the Worthies in the distance is, is kind of a, a semi-circle, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so the design of that is you have the 16 British Worthies. And these 16 Worthies have been picked because they show the right characteristics that men needed to have. The left-hand side is... The thinkers, shall we say. It's, it's the eight people that Cobham thought were really, really, really great for their thinking. Then as you look across to the right-hand side, it's the eight people who were famous for their doing. So you've got people of brain power and people of action. In the doers, there's one person in there who really, his name wasn't known, no one knew who he was. But Cobham and Walpole fell out largely over the excise bill in 1733. And this John Bernard, who sits on the corner of it, the reason he's in there is because he voted with Cobham against Walpole in the excise bill. So for Cobham to put him in there saying, this, this merchant deserves a place in there when Walpole doesn't, it, it's just such a, a great way to say, yeah, no, I've, I've had enough of you. You don't deserve a place in my garden. We also have the, the 17th secret worthy that not many people know about. And it's, it's, it's in the form of a poem. And it talks about this Signor Fido, who was a great husband and a great hunter and warrior. And you think, oh gosh, who is this person? And then when you get to the bottom, you realise actually it was Cobham's pet greyhound. So even the dog made it in there. <laughs> and Walpole didn't. The view is quite spectacular from the Temple of Virtue, but it has significance in other terms as well, doesn't it? 
Yeah, so it's very cleverly designed. As you stand here and you look down at it, you'll, you'll notice that it feels really light. So it's meant to represent a place where the gods pick these people who can be immortalised and spend the rest of time in this gorgeous setting. So the fact that this landscape is so open and just glorious, it, it shows that these people belonged here. This Whig government belonged in such a paradise, whereas Walpole, who's hidden away under the, under the yew trees in his broken-down temple, uh, he had no place here. We've been on an amazing journey today. We've met and heard about a 700-year-old tree that's witnessed enormous change at Stowe. I've walked through and hopefully described an abandoned village in the landscape. We've heard about the complex Whig associations with the family at Stowe. We've learned about the, the passion, the success, the fortune it costs to create a landscape like this, but also about the characters throughout history who are almost determined and a little bit mean to the locals in moving villages out of the way just to achieve their dream. And if you want to find out more information about Stowe, you can visit their website at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Stowe. For our next full episode, I'll be in Mount Stewart in Northern Ireland, discovering the wonderful gardens there. That episode will be available in a couple of weeks, but don't worry, there will be a mini episode available next week. We'll be going behind the scenes with one of the rangers, Isabel Thompson, to learn more about the conservation and ecology in Stowe's Grecian Valley. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or your chosen podcast app. And please do let us know what you thought of this episode and share your suggestions for future topics on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We're at National Trust. You can also email us at podcasts at nationaltrust.org.uk. Until next time, from me, Alan Power and all the team here at Stowe, goodbye.